Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I am TJ Van Toll, and today we are excited to welcome Jack Harrington to the episode. Jack, why don't you tell people who you are, what you do, that sort of stuff? Hi. Uh, yeah, I'm a YouTuber. I run a channel called The, the Blue Collar Coder, and I also have posts on Medium and Dev2, and I do a lot on TypeScript and advanced front-end topics like module federation, micro front ends, all kinds of stuff like that. And I'm a huge fan of the show, so thank you for having me on. Awesome. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, this should be fun. I was looking over your YouTube channel here before, and it's it's kind of cool. I mean, you have a lot of topics, a lot of interesting stuff. Maybe we could start. I, I know we've got a couple things we want to cover, but the stuff with mod module federation, micro front ends, that sort of stuff, because at least for me, that's a world that I haven't dug into <laughs> like at all. So I and probably some of our listeners could use like, a one-on-one level explanation of like what that sort of stuff is, why we should care, all of that good stuff. Sure, absolutely. So when I think of module federation, I think of runtime dependencies. So we're all familiar with NPM and build time dependencies where you're bringing in a library and they're using it in your application and that's great and fun. What runtime dependencies allow you to do is have a dependency where it actually can change without you recompiling and redistributing your code, which is really cool. So my previous experience was at Walmart Labs and at Nike doing big company kind of stuff. So we had these monolithic applications. It was Java Spring, it was like handlebars or yeah, one of those up stuff. on the front end. <laughs> yeah, right? And we're like, oh, we got to do Node and we got to do React, cool. And we, what we want to do is we want to break up that monolith into smaller pieces so we can distribute them, you know, kind of on their own schedule as opposed to like once a week. And that's great. So you go and you take like the home page and you you break that out and you build an app out of it. And you got the header on there and the footer and then you got the home page in there. And you decide, well, that was really great. We, we kicked butt on that and we did it really fast. And now we're going to go and do the same thing for like a search page or a product detail page. And the first thing you run into is, whoa, we don't want to redo the header on every page. We don't want to have each team go and build its own version of the header. And so what you end up doing is you end up building essentially what's a micro front end. You, you build and deploy that header as a separate artifact, maybe up to S3. You know, maybe it's a React app that has its own kind of wrapper on it. You know, there's all kinds of different variations on a theme there. And most people were kind of rolling their own or using systems like uh, single spa or open components. There's a bunch of different ones out there. And the new thing is that there's a system called Module Federation that's built into Webpack 5. And what it allows you to do is take that header that's in the homepage 
and just expose it right out of the head, out of the homepage directly, right, as its own React component. And then another application can then consume it really easily. They basically just say, hey, okay, go get this, the, the remote is what they call it. Uh, and then they can just import it just like they would any other module. The really cool thing, though, is when, let's just say that the homepage has exported this header and the search page has now included that header. Now, when the homepage bumps a version and puts a new version of the header out there, the search page grabs it automatically, right? Because it's got that dynamic runtime dependency. And that's really important for a company like you know, the size of a, like a, a Nike or a Walmart Labs or whatever. They want to make sure that they've got absolute consistency across the entire interface and it allows them to do that really, really easily. So it's a really exciting technology. Yeah, I, I suppose because if you told me to build something like that today, because I've, I've certainly ran into that problem as well, my first thought would be, well, I'd build a package called like my-company-header and I'd upload it to like some NPM, yeah, if it's for a company, probably some private NPM, you know, place, whatever. But I, I see the point because I was, I was trying to get to like, well, how is this different than that? But it sounds like the difference is since it's like a live runtime dependency, that header, you update it, it, it affects everything that's currently using it because it's yeah. not at build time. You don't have to bump up that version number. It's like, this is just the header you're changing in all places. Yep. So I imagine that I can see the power of that. Mm -hmm. and I imagine there's also probably some concern with this as well <laughs> because sometimes it's kind of nice to be able to update the header and not have it go into effect in all applications. So I imagine that's a consideration that goes into this too. Oh, absolutely. So there's a couple of different things that we've looked at in that space. And I've got videos on a couple of different approaches around this. The, the first is what it's basically calling basically safe reuse. And what happens is you put an error boundary around that header. And then when that error boundary trips, you then asynchronously load the NPM version of it that you have connected. And so you're falling back onto a safe NPM version that's pre-built and you can verify it and all that kind of great stuff. Another version that we just did just recently was a pattern by Jacob Ebby that allows us to uh, use unpackage and you can actually import a version of it. You, so you can you know, use unpackage, you can put the version specification in there, you know, caret 1.0.0 or whatever, and it'll track to that. And then if things blow up, then you can literally just pop that version number back down, redeploy, and go to a specific version number that you know works. So there's a bunch of different solves. But yeah, it definitely is kind of a, an architectural paradigm that there's a risk-reward factor with it, right? You can really mess yourself up pretty badly if you if you do it wrong. But it's it's got a lot of upside. Yeah, and I do like the fact that it, it seems like it just sort of gives you some flexibility, right? Like there's uh -huh. nothing stopping you from doing building things the way you've always built them. But now you have this option to do things because there's certain things that I could see being quite safe to deploy. Like you, it almost, you'd have to take it on a case by case basis of what makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, it, when we think about things in, as like an atomic architecture, right? Like the whole, what is it, molecules, atoms, molecules, atoms, organs, yeah. <laughs> organisms, all that, right? I tend to think of micro front ends and at that, at the, at the organism level. So think about it, you know, like a header, you know, it's got its own maybe service calls that it's making. It's, it's intelligent. It's all that. Or like a product carousel. You know, those are the kinds of things that I do and show off. I'm, I'm a little hesitant to think about it when it comes to like the atom level, like you do your entire DSL this way. It's kind yeah. of, oh, I don't know. That's, that may be a bit much. Yeah. 
The other thing I'm trying to think through in my head is, so because these are at runtime, how does this work? Because I'm used to write my header, I bring it in, it's part of my client-side bundle, it ships with my application, but then I get all the benefits of, right, like Webpack's going to tree shake it and do all Mm -hmm. the like optimize it and that sort of thing. Since this is a runtime dependency, is this like, is my header being downloaded at runtime? Do I have like network and performance considerations to, to consider with this approach? It is being downloaded at runtime and Webpack is doing a lot of that work for you. It's also, and you can do it asynchronously. So you can do it yep. where, you know, it's on demand, like you click a button and then it's like the tire finder or whatever pops up and it loads it and pops up. But what I think is actually kind of really cool about module federation is that there's this really advanced dependency management system underneath the hood. So if you bring, if, if I'm, let's say, I'm, cre- I'm putting out there a React module, right? And it's got a dependency on, I don't know, React Query, right? But yeah. your application that you're importing it into doesn't have React Query. It'll actually go and say, okay, I need that too before I load it. And it'll bring in React Query, and then it'll bring in my code. So it does all that stuff for you. And then if you have React Query, I'll just use yours and be a much smaller download. So it's really cool. It's really optimized for that sort of thing. Yeah, and I can see that I think this also plays into the the prioritization. Like maybe because there is a download involved, maybe you want to be more concerned if you're putting this on like your very front and center, like the very first thing the user sees, because I could see there being a a small, tiny penalty, depending on what it is you're doing. But on something usually with React apps, like, that initial page might render somewhat statically or try to go fast, but then everything else is coming in dynamically anyways. Right. So yeah, it's, it's really, really not that much of an ask to, to pull in like some additional modules this way. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Right. And if you are okay with bundle splitting, you, know, th- you can just kind of think about this as like bundle splitting on steroids. Right. Yeah. Bundle splitting where you might not know a priori what all those bundles are. So is this, how stable is this? Is like, is this something people are using in production? Is this like experimental? Um, is this like an actual like shipped part of Webpack? Where, where is this, the whole state of all of this at? It was shipped in Webpack about middle of last year. It's very, very stable. The API hasn't changed since about mid-year 2020. The documentation could use some help. We Zach, who was the original author on, on Module Federation and still is huge advocate and pushing it all the time. Uh, he and I together wrote this book on it. And so that, that's got a lot of good material, but it's more kind of practically focused. But yeah, no, it's definitely out there. There's a lot of great examples. There's my YouTube video. There's a bunch of YouTube videos. I think there's like now like 38 around that topic. It's crazy. Wow. Um, and then Medium, there's a bunch of posts out there. There's also a great whole set of canonical examples on the Module Federation GitHub that have, you know, if you want to do Vue or Svelte or whatever, and there's all kinds so, of different stuff. So I'm just behind the times, which isn't really a surprise. <laughs> That's okay. And the times move so fast, it's really hard to keep up. Yeah, it's one of those things that, like, I feel like there's enough going on in the JavaScript and the React world that, like, we tend to focus on the problems that we have. And if you're not, I think you prefaced all of this, right? You worked in a large organization. These are the problems that tend to crop up if you're in a big organization, you have lots of moving pieces, you need to keep things up to date. And if you're just me and you work as a developer advocate and you build a lot of demos sort of thing, you don't necessarily hit some of these more like production scale, real world oh, things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ones where, you know, you got the 
the interesting case where people have a, they need to test it completely and E to E and, and then ship it. And now you're like, wait, but it's not completely there because it's got this, you know, runtime dependency and how's all that work? Yeah, these only, I, I never even experienced that. Like at Nike and Walmart, we didn't have those kind of concerns. In fact, actually, we kind of wanted to have <laughs> that kind of dynamic behavior. So, you know, it just, yeah, there's all kinds of different stuff. And that, yeah, the, my YouTube videos, I, either they're from the community, they're like, hey, you need to cover this. I'm like, okay, all right, I'll go cover that. Or they're basically me at work. Like I, I was doing one recently on like analytics and doing type safe analytics with TypeScript. And it's basically because that was what I had to do at work like the week before. And I was trying to figure out like, am I going to use an event map for this? Am I going to use, you know, function overloading? And I'm like, well, I'll try all three and see how it works. Yeah, it's funny too, because lots of times people ask me because I've been a developer advocate, like, well, what do I write about? Or what do I have to say? And usually my answer is, well, like, what's the most recent problem you had at your job? And like, if you solved it, chances are other people have had that problem. And your findings on that are probably going to be somewhat interesting to people. Yeah, absolutely. I was listening to uh, your React Ramp Up podcast of last week. And it was funny, because you guys were talking about how there's a lot of beginner content out there on Medium. There's like how to hook up your Node app to a SQL database and stuff like that. But there really isn't a lot of like senior level and advanced level content. And so that's, I'm like, hey, okay, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, but that's, that's the kind of thing that, that I'd like to talk about. And it's, and it's because, you know, that's what we run into day in and day out. Yeah. So before we wrap up on like the module federation micro front ends is, is Webpack like the only player in town for some of this? Are there other types of implementations that are trying to achieve this same sort of thing? There was an effort to kind of get this into roll-up. And I don't know where that stands currently. And then there was also some talk about getting it into parcel as well, kind of making it more of a universal standard for runtime loading. But I don't know where those are. I, I do know that like single spa, which is considered kind of a... I don't know, best-in-class framework for doing microFEs. This is one of their two standard deployment mechanisms. There's System.js, and then there's Module Federation. So that's done an awful lot to help people kind of say, oh, okay, this is, this is ready for prime time. We can do this. Yeah. And then I think my last question, because I'm just going through my like thoughts in my head right now, <laughs> no worries, is, man. so are there any unit testing implications of this? Because I'm thinking like, okay, I'm testing a component that depends on my now runtime header. Like, are there just different, like, what do I need so that that header is like magically there so my testing works as I expect? That's an interesting thing. So let's talk about two different methods of testing. And so on the unit testing side, actually, it's funny, there's, in tech Twitter, we're talking about this all the time. And, and Zach is of the mind of like, hey, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to work. I'm going to go, we're going to have, you know, runtime loading. So you're going to unit test. So I'll work as is, as you expect. And I'm kind of on the other side of it, which is, I don't normally unit test my dependencies, right? So I'm going to mock yeah. you regardless right? I'm not going to try and download the header because I, I'm expecting the header itself is going to have its own unit test and be cool. And then I'll just you know, test my stuff. That's my job. So that, that's the two sort of schools of thought. And you can go whichever way you want on that. And then there's also E to E testing. So let's go back to that like example of Nike or Walmart Labs or whatever. And there's an issue there where once you've got these like five microsites, and that's what that's called. You go from the monolith to the microsite, where the, each microsite is like homepage and product detail page and search page and all that, right? How do you do an end-to-end -end smoke test? How do you say, okay, 
I want a smoke test where the customer goes on the homepage, then they click on a search, then they click on a product, then they click on add to cart, then they go into the checkout, and then they go into, yeah, but they finally end up in like the whole stream, right? And that's a real pain in the butt when it comes to these microsite architectures, because now you've got to go and maybe set up a whole staging environment that has all, all of those. And then you kind of slip in yours and then do a full test. But now, wait a second, if each team, does each team need to have its own staging environment? And how do those keep up to date? Ah, it's just crazy. Right? Yeah. So what this allows you to do is what we, what we call full site federation, which means that you can, because of the, the nature of module federation, have it such that every single page or every single microsite, like the homepage, can actually bring in all of the other experiences asynchronously and use React Router to actually serve everything so that you can do, you can actually unit test or EDE test just homepage and have it still vend the entire experience from tip to tail, which is like <laughs> mind-blowing. I don't know of any companies that have fully embraced that yet, but it is something that I've got as a, a video and some example code and I think it's just really fascinating. It's really cool to see. Yeah, it's interesting stuff because I, I tend to agree with you that I don't I don't want to unit test my dependencies, but sometimes I also don't want to mock every one of my dependencies, mm -hmm, right? Sure. Like I want to test something and I just want the header to just chill there and out of the way. I don't want to have to type in like some mocking library to make sure my code actually compiles and runs yeah. sort of thing. And the more magic that can just work, <laughs> the better because <laughs> I could also like you see that getting pretty complex in like a real world setup but sounds like there's there's plans and there's pass forward so that's pretty cool totally it's a it's a price you pay for getting that runtime dependency thing if the runtime it's, dependency is critical to you and it's something you know product wants because they want to make sure that every the entire experience is coherent from tip to tail then that's just part of the tax of doing that and you have to yeah. just make sure that you're okay with that <laughs> no such thing as a free lunch right no absolutely not <laughs> yeah so another thing I want to get into, because I know a lot of your YouTube content revolves around this as well, is TypeScript. Mm. And I, I guess just I'm a fan of TypeScript as well. And I think most of us on the, the show here as well. But I think I'm, I'm curious how you got into TypeScript and where you see TypeScript in sort of the React world and the React community today as well. Sure. So I got into TypeScript, I would say, a little bit middle of last year. And then really towards the end of last year, I was like, oh, this is the way. Right. And my 2021 or what's new, what's going to be hot in 2021 video was pretty much dead. Oh, right up front was do TypeScript, learn TypeScript in 2021, because in 2021 on resumes, it's going to be a nice to have. I'm going to guess by 2022, TypeScript is going to be a must have. Right. And the reason is I just think it it's easier to code. There's great hinting for you as you're going along. I actually... I did a video where we experimented with taking the AWS uh, UI toolkit that they came out with and is totally undocumented. This is just for like AWS folks internal to AWS. I don't know why they put it out in public, the public domain, but they did, <laughs> which is cool. And I'm like, okay, here's an experiment. Is TypeScript good enough to actually learn a UI toolkit without actually having any docs? And it turns out it is because of all of the hinting and everything else. And they actually did an amazing job and I learned a lot all their type definitions about generic uh, components and all that sort of stuff. But I think, yeah, it's a huge must-have. It's And for the React community, there's a there are huge wins. I think you know, generic components is something that we have talked not enough about. 
where you know you can pass in some data, but you, you make it generic so that you know you, when you get some render hooks coming back or render props coming back, you're shown what that data is and it's type safe and all that. I think there's just a lot we can do, and it's just a great match. And um, honestly, at this point, I wouldn't start applications in JavaScript. I would only do TypeScript. Yeah, it's funny because your story is fairly similar to mine in terms of what sold me because I work for company progress, we make UI components, that's like our, our bread and butter. And we make kind of advanced UI components, oh, and cool. which is cool. But it's also like some of the most intimidating APIs, <laughs> kind of by just the nature of what they are, right? Because they're complex things, there's complex things that you need to do. And I'm intrigued nice now, like, I want you to send me a link so that I can just I want to <laughs> see what this looks like. Yeah, well, like, data grids, you know, Gantt oh, yeah. charts, like all sorts of oh, crazy cool. things that you can build with React. But like, one thing that sucks about that is you constantly have to have like the documentation site open because it's like, oh, crap, what's the name of that property or that, mm -hmm. that hook, that sort of thing. And I'll say TypeScript doesn't completely eliminate that, right? There's sometimes where you just need to see usage and such. But just so it's just so nice to be able to just see an autocomplete of like, oh, that's what the name is, or like, oh, mm -hmm that needs a, you know, this, this type of thing. These are the props that it needs. These are the ones that are optional. Like you can provide like nice little like documentation almost. It almost reminds me of bringing in some of the best parts of some compiled languages and such that I've used in the past. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, when I was doing the analytics stuff just recently, right, analytics isn't something that most people want to think about in their application, right? They, it's kind of the the extra little add-on at the end. Oh, we got to instrument it so that when you click on a button, it sends an event, add to cart or whatever. And then it sends it off to Segment or Adobe Analytics or Omniture or yep. whatever, what have you, right? We just need to do it right, right, every time. And what TypeScript allows you to do is basically put in there the definition of what the payload is supposed to look like. And then if you change that payload later, product management says, hey, I need to, you know, we need to go and track the, I don't know, user session ID or who knows, <laughs> right, whatever. Right, and you add that that parameter to that payload, then it tells you right away. Here's the 15 locations you've got to fix right now. And if you don't do that, you're not going to pass the length. You're not going to you're not going to compile. Boom, 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 and you're done. And you're not going to get that in JavaScript. You're just not. And it's, yeah, well, it's, it's a butt saver. Right, and it's not only that you won't get that, but sometimes you get that in like production. Right? Yeah, you don't want that. <laughs> Because nothing's there's nothing stopping you, right? There's no compiler in JavaScript. You toss that code out there, and then your user finds that error on some right. page you didn't think to check. Yeah, exactly. What are you going to do? Are you going to go and do like a find in files, basically for that particular event name? And maybe it's, you know, maybe that event name isn't quite unique enough, you know? And you get like a ton of extra, and now you're like trying to pick out like which which of the valid events, which are uh, which are not events, and it's like ah, no, no, TypeScript. It's got you covered. So I'm wondering if there's some tips and tricks you would have, like your top things that you think React developers could like really utilize for TypeScript. Because you mentioned like generics and components. That'd be an interesting one. I'd be curious if you could go into more detail on exactly how you would structure a component for that sort of situation. Right. So imagine like an unordered list component, right? And you want to have a, like a render prop in there where, okay, I'm going to give you some data. You're going to make an unordered list as a component. And then you're going to call me back when you want to render a list item, right? You can go and really easily say, okay, for, for my ordered list component, let's just call it that, or unordered list, whatever it is. Yep. Here's, here's the, the data, right? And instead of saying it's a 
an item or it's a, you know, it's an, a record that's undefined as an array, right? You give it a, a, a type, a generic, like, you know, often people do T, but you can do use whatever you want. And so you put kind of less than greater than T at the beginning of the function declaration. And then when you have your data, you just say T as an array, T open bracket, left bracket. And then when you're iterating through it, as you pass it on to the render prop, that which is also defined as like a, a value that takes T, right? That means that when I use your unordered list or whatever, as I'm bringing that render prop, as I'm implementing that render prop, it's telling me, oh, that's that's the data that you sent in. Was it an array of integers? Cool, it's an integer. If you use an array of strings, cool, it's a string. Great, awesome. And it and if it's an array of of a, com of a complex object, here's all that cool hinting of the field names and all the rest, and it's just really really easy. Um, I will say to more on like it. When people get stung, and I, I like to take away like the things that make sting people early on, you really need to also make sure that your your hooks are okay and type safe. And one of the things that trips people up is like use state, and where they'll have like a payload coming back, and it's either a payload or it's null, right? I haven't gotten it yet, so the payload's currently null, and they they're like, oh, I want to, okay, I got my use effect, and it's trying to set that value, but it's complaining that like the state is. Is not null. I'm not like the only potential state of when you start with state as null is still null because it doesn't know what the payload type is. So you need to understand how generics work in terms of like use state, where you say it's a payload type or it's null, but it's initially null and all that kind of stuff. And people get stung by that, and so I've got a video on kind of walking people through that. But uh, yeah, I will important. say it's this is something that I need to check out your videos because this is something I need to commit to learning because I will say my one probably biggest issue with TypeScript is that usually it benefits me, but occasionally I get in the situation where I the, the TypeScript compiler is yelling at me. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it's yelling at me and I get <laughs> very upset at it <laughs> yeah. because like the TypeScript errors are usually not like, I mean, sometimes they're obvious, right? Like sometimes they're the very helpful, oh, hey, this, this needs to be a number and you pass a string. It's like, okay, thank you, TypeScript compiler. But mm -hmm. sometimes it's just like, cannot accept this parameter because it expects like long list of things oh. and you pass this other long list of things. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh crap, well, what does that even mean? Like I sometimes wish those error messages were a little, I mean, I, I don't know if they can make them more intelligent, but just smarter. So I, I'm totally with you there. It's like the, you know, the 10th subfield nested thing is I it is not optional, you know? And then in the other case, it is optional. And you're like, ah, that's it? That's it. Right, I mean, or it doesn't conform more. to some interface or like something like that or the, the I don't know, the really painful part. So I don't, like, I do you have any tips for dealing with that other than like, do I just need to like commit to just learning some of the basics a little bit more so I don't put myself in these situations so much? Uh, get used to utility types. I don't know if you know about these, but things like record. And then there's other ones like return type. And return type is really cool because what it allows you to do is say, hey, I've got this function, like use state as an example, and I made my hook and I built it around this, but I'm, I want to use, I want to go and use the return type out of use state, which would be like the value and then a setter but that setter can either be a function or it can be a function that takes a function and it's kind of <laughs> yeah. mind blowing, right? So what you can do instead is use this return type utility type to basically say, hey, I don't know what that thing is returning, but it's gonna be that. <laughs> and then you can, you know, and you can put it out there. And that way, whenever that return type change, and whenever that, that use state changes, your code just works. You know, it just, it's got that return type now because you're kind of using more references as opposed to like trying to recode 
stuff. And those utility types allow you to kind of grab a type from here, use it over there, maybe take out this field or that field or whatever. And then those are super helpful when it comes to that sort of thing. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. And so return type, is that a feature of TypeScript itself? Yeah, that's a built-in utility type. There is a whole bunch of, the whole page of utility types that you can use. Uh, there's partial, a lot of folks are partial to partial. There's, yeah, there's return type. You can actually look at parameters. There's an amazing thing, actually, that I saw. It was called um, TypeScript Challenges. It's a, a GitHub repo that basically has kind of the next level things that you can do with TypeScript that even I'm just like, whoa, dude, that's <laughs> craziness. But yeah, get, get, get really comfortable. Yeah, anyway, it's a good way, fun way to challenge yourself. But yeah, I would get really, really familiar with those, those utility types. Yeah, it almost reminds me. I did a Java back in the day. And it brings back, like, I, I think TypeScript does a better job than Java did because in Java, because Java was strictly type, like, lots of times you just got absolutely horribly angry at the compiler. Oh, I know. For dealing yeah. with types. Whereas TypeScript, it's, it's still, like, these are, like, helpful things, but you can still sort of work your way around it because at the end of the day, it is still an interpreted language that you're dealing with. Yeah, I remember when I was doing C++ way back in the day. And they came out with the, the standard template library, RSTL. And so folks were really starting to use generics. And man, those error messages got so bad that people actually created a Perl module that would look at the error message and kind of like translate it into <laughs> human for you. Like, oh, you actually just messed up here, you know. And because you, you make one mistake and you get this massive output of, of things just barking at you. And you're like, wait. I, I just was, you know, I just missed a star. Yeah, and I think, like, for me, I'm looking over the utility types in TypeScript, and we'll toss that in the show notes as well. These are things I've seen somewhat, but, like, I haven't committed to actually learning them. But I think, like, doing that would help me build APIs that just make more <laughs> logical sense. Mm -hmm. Super robust. And also, you know, get you kind of define it once, and you never need to, to redefine it. I mean, another thing I would really encourage folks to do is, and I, I don't know if there's a, a term for this that I don't know yet, but really double down on what, I call, what I'm calling hook-oriented development, which is uh, we're very used to seeing example code where it's like you get a couple of use dates at the top of the, of the function, and then you get a use effect or whatever, a couple of different things. I'm seeing more and more projects extract that into a custom hook and then type that and reuse that. And I'm that's definitely a trend. And so you got to shift your thinking around from thinking of hooks as you know, just something that's going to bring back state into functions where we lost it from classes and more into like a tinker toy toolkit that allow you to build more complex custom hooks like uh, React Query or there's a whole bunch of there's a React Hooks repo that's got our library that has tons of these things. And there's a great point to actually kind of just read through the code and see, oh, that's how they did that. That's a that's a decent timer hook. That's a, that's how they just constructed this, and start thinking about building out these custom hooks. I think that's going to be a, a, a thing going forward. Yeah, I feel like you're you're talking directly to me because I'm totally guilty of this because 
I every time I see code like this, I always think like, oh, that's kind of nice, cl- like clever and like nice, and I like it. But then when I go to write code, I never my brain doesn't work that way. I'm just gonna keep stacking you states up because that's the way <laughs> I've done it. And <laughs> and if I don't want to, you know, rebuild, re- redraw, I'm just gonna use ref, you know, yeah. and and there you go. Yeah, and if um, I need an effect, use effect, and I, I just keep <laughs> stacking them up. What could right. go wrong? <laughs> and then I put a, a console log in my use effect, and it's getting called a million times a second. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah, <laughs> right. But yeah. Yeah, I, I would say just really get comfortable with it and also understand like when stale state is that you know, you got something coming out of use effect where if you return a function that you're supposed to then that that like will take away the event listener or the the timer or whatever you have in the use effect, get really comfortable with that stuff because I think that that's a, a thing going forward. Gotcha. I know you've also done some stuff around like state management libraries as well. Um, oh my gosh, yes. Videos on like, Zustin, which is another library that I'm hearing about for the first time today. So I'm curious your experiences with that. Any any tips and tricks you think I should know around that space? Well, tip number one, and my my German boss would iterate this a couple of times, is that it's Zustand. Zustand. I'm still struggling with it myself. Yeah. So I think basically they're trying to find any word in another language that that is state. <laughs> You know, and so that German, it's out of words in the NPN registry. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, uh, Jotai, all of that stuff. But yeah, I have done a lot with them, particularly around are they type safe or not, and and trying to understand how they work well with TypeScript, and also um, if they're if they're good in that hook oriented development style. Are they giving you like, for example, Jotai gives you really nice hooks, and then you can kind of bring those into your own custom hooks and have a little bit of global state. And it's just it's just a fascinating world out there. What I, I kind of look at it as we had classes and we had state in classes. And then the React community said, state is evil. We need to kill state. And then we all went to, to Redux. Yep. And then Hooks came around and Hooks had a little bit of Redux in it with use reducer. And then suddenly got murky again. Like, oh, wait, no, state's okay now. Okay, cool. And and then Redux maybe, hmm, you know, we'll be moving on from Redux. Like the older apps will they'll keep going with it, but maybe newer apps aren't going to use it. Maybe they'll just use con- uh, st- hooks. Maybe they'll just do the, the custom hook stuff. But it also opened the door for, hey, okay, cool. We need a little bit of global state. How are we going to do that? And so Daishi Kato, who's a kind of luminary in this space, has created a bunch of very, very small libraries like Zustand. Zustand is 1.8K, I think. Oh, and wow. I mean, yeah, these are tiny, tiny, tiny little libraries that do just really cool stuff. And it's kind of just a, a how do you want your API to feel? If you want to feel like Redux, use Zustand. If you want to feel like MobX, use Valshio. If you want to feel like Recoil, well, okay, you could use Recoil, but it's big. Or you could use Jotai, which is much smaller. And I think it, there's a whole thing about how he's doing some really cool stuff in that space. And then there's some just basically more primitive ones, like there's a, a use global state hook that you can just bring in if you just want to have like a piece of global state, you know, that that you have a hook on. Yeah. First of all, I would encourage people, if you've not seen Justin's logo, you should totally <gasps> drop everything. And go oh my God. It. Yeah, that bear is just so cool. It is yeah. a bear that I... I don't know if I could possibly describe it with words. You just kind of have to see it for yourself. It's like playing a, a banjo. I I would love to know the story behind this because 
it's just very random, uh, but very cool. It's it is, and it's interesting how I think it's because it's part of the three JS library structure. I think Swishtand and Valshio, I think, are part of three JS, and then there's a couple others that are part of like Daishikato's personal org. I'm not sure how it all plays out, but but I think that's why we get that really cool bear animation. Yeah, I think the interesting thing to me too is that I mean, to me, this is what's great about React and what's horrible horrible about React, the fact that there's so many of these things. Like it's, I, I've also done some Angular stuff in a previous life. And it's funny because although there is some of this discussion in the Angular world, for the most part, it's like, well, we just do whatever Angular ships, right? That's just the mm-hmm. way it is. And sometimes that sucks because sometimes Angular is not doing the greatest thing. Uh, but right. sometimes it's just nice to like not have to be concerned about this. So I'm curious what you think about like what you would encourage people that are uh, kind of overwhelmed, right? I'm starting a new, I, I, I need state management for my project because almost every React app does. And they're thrown this like absolute litany of different projects, some of which are hard to pronounce, some of which have uh, bears for, <laughs> for, for logos. Is there like a practical path you'd encourage people to, to, to try out for these sorts of things? Oh, man, I've been asked that question so many times. And I'm about the best I have is is what I mentioned before, which is, you know, if you were thinking about something like Redux, then you think about sort of this stuff. But there are some really cool alternatives that have very special cases, like xState is really cool if you have something that's best modeled as a finite state machine. Like, for example, I mean, in my videos, I use like a pizza ordering you know, system where it's like, okay, you got to figure out what the pizza is, and then you got to order what one of your toppings, and there's discrete states, and it's like a wizard and that sort of thing. I, that was the, my mental model for that. Yep. So if you got that, then that's a really good fit for that. And then there's Jotai and Recoil, which I think have a very specific fit, but they're also doing some really cool stuff. I know that Tanner Inslee is helping out integrate React Query in for jo- into Jotai atoms, and then also XState is coming in as a Jotai atom. So just, just mind-blowingly cool stuff. That being said, I, I wish I had like a really good recipe for like, if you need this, you need that. I would say for me, my my hunch is start with hook-oriented development. Yeah. See how far you can get with that. And then if you, you need some shared global state, use something really small. Use like a use global state type hook. And all it is is just replacement for use state where it's instead of local, it's just global. And then see if that works for you. And then if you really need something like along the lines of a, a Valshia, like a, a larger state manager, then yeah, take a look, taste test the different state managers, see what, what kind of guarantees you want, what kind of TypeScript safety you want, and then and pick from there. And then, of course, adding even further complication on that, there's the whole debate about whether you even need state manager because maybe React Query is enough, maybe Apollo is enough, <sighs> just so many options. Yeah, I, I do like the advice. I, I think it's well said that just start with the basics because... Honestly, you might not need any of this if you're building something simple. And really, you don't appreciate what these libraries are doing until you've hit these sort of problems. Like you don't appreciate what global state is doing for you until you try to to build something like that without having a library. And you realize, oh, this is actually a a little bit of a problem. And I could use something that helps out with that. Same thing for when you get more complex and you have, you know, you get to the React query level where you need the ability to like, cache things and uh you know back roll back things and like if you're doing that without a library it gets uh, very fun very quickly so you, <laughs> you appreciate what you're bringing in a little bit more yeah if there's yeah 
is the value that you're getting from whatever you're bringing in worth the bites? Because at the end of the day, there is another big push as well into performance, right? React is big. Preact is a possible potential solve for that in some ways, but like bundle splitting and performance, after a while, you get down to just, you know, everybody's hitting bundle phobia. How big is this thing <laughs> that I'm bringing in? And is it worth the cost? You know, by the, oh, and I, I guess I, I missed one in there. So you started off with the basic hook stuff and then maybe context before yeah, you yeah. jump to the global state stuff. And then I know that is a, as you had a great podcast last week or, or with Mark talking about how global like context is not global state management and all that. And I think there's some interesting stuff in there, but it's certainly valuable. Yeah, the lines are blurry, but it's good. Mm. It's good context to have. So I want to make sure the, the other thing I wanted to chat with you about is is just, I guess, YouTube and mm. your sort of work there because you have a YouTube channel. You've been putting out a lot of videos there. So I'd just be curious, what got you started on YouTube? Uh, what do you find like exciting about that platform and uh, making videos? So every job I've been at, I've been doing like brown bags and stuff where like, oh, hooks came out. Let me do, you know, a brown bag on, on what we know about hooks and how we can use it and teach people. And I've always enjoyed that. And I also did with Nike some outreach into elementary schools and, and teaching kids how to code and that sort of stuff. So teaching is is fun for me and, and figuring out how to break down something into a story, how to tell a story about it, I think is, is really engaging. And so it's just an outlet for me to be able to do that. And, and the response has been really good. I've been very helpful. People have been giving me all kinds of ideas. We've got a really actually pretty decent Discord server running right now where people are joining up and, and giving me video ideas, but also help me do cool stuff. Like I, in every one of my live streams, we have this Saturn V rocket behind me. And now on the Discord server, you can actually go and just change the color of the rocket and it'll change <laughs> in the live stream. And people really enjoy that. And so, you know, it's just, it's, it's really fun. And I was reading this book actually just recently about hope. It's uh, that everything is effed. And the idea of the first, in the first couple of chapters is we all need hope. And the way that you generate hope is you have a, you have work that you find valuable. Uh, you have a sense of purpose in it. And then you have a community around it that also cares about that, that whatever you're working on. And what I find is that oftentimes I get 100% of that stuff basically from work. And then when work is not going well, it kind of, I feel, ugh, you know, like I'm, I'm run down and I'm like, ugh, this is not great. Yep. What's really cool is now that I have the YouTube channel and I've got this entire community around that YouTube channel, like if work's not going great, you know, they're always there to like, kind of like, hey, I love that video. Thank you so much. And then it's like, oh, wow. Okay, so there's, uh, now I've got like multiple sources of hope in my life. And I, th I find that just super valuable. Yeah, I like that a whole lot. I, I found similar things too, that like it's, it's just nice having a positive community that you yeah. can reach out to and um, have that interaction. It just gives you another outlet. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like one of my uh, subscribers is like, I really love what you do. Let me help you out with better thumbnails because I think that's going to help, you know, and let me help yeah. you out on the SEO side. And, and it's just, it's just really great. You know, I'm not, I, I don't have those artistic skills the way that he does. So it's great to see that uh, people are, are joining in and, and, feel like they're part of it. 
What advice would you have for people that are sort of interested in this, but are kind of overwhelmed and don't know where to start, right? YouTube's a busy place. There's, if you upload a video, right, there's lots competing for attention, have to compete against you, have to compete against all these other people to get in front of people's faces. What do you recommend for people to, to getting started and want to start to build up their presence? I'd say always concentrate on the content. You know, it's all the old Pixar thing of like content is king. The story is king. That's going to that's gonna keep people engaged with the video. So, you know, do that first. Construct your story that you want to tell and make it engaging. I wouldn't worry about the video quality or the audio quality. People will look past that if, if the content is engaging enough. That being said, in terms of like marketing it in the YouTube set of, of the world of YouTube, it, that is definitely a thing. You know, you need to figure out what are people looking for? And that oftentimes that's just the YouTube search bar. You know, just, hey, if I, I'm thinking about doing a thing on, I don't know, TypeScript and Electron, you know, and I, I go into the search bar and I look for TypeScript Electron and it's like, look at the number of views on these videos. Is this something that people are talking about? Is this something people seem to are searching for and they care about? And then try and find that kind of convergence space where it's something that you want to talk about, but it's something that also people want to hear about because those are both really important, right? You wanting to tell the story will help you build a better story, but people wanting to uh, listen to it, it will help you make sure that like when you put that video out there, you don't get like, you know, 20 people and a dog watching your video, you know, <laughs> which is kind of yeah. disheartening, right? You spent eight hours or whatever building this video, depending on how far you want to go with it. I mean, that's, that, that's pretty crazy. You, normally, you know, in the beginning, it's like a one, but yeah. And I guess my only other hope would be, you know, value your viewers time, right? Don't just get on there and just kind of ramble for, you know, an hour and a half and only cover the topic that you care about for the for 10 minutes in there, you know, value that that person's time and edit it down, get it into a coherent story so that, you know, maybe it's five minutes, maybe it's 10 minutes, but they they come away knowing, hey, I, I want to know about SWM with the, the web tokens, you know? And, you know, with Jots, right? And so I'm going to YouTube for Jots. I want a five-minute video that tells me what a Jot is, how I'm going to use it, where it's, where it's important, and boom, 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 boom. If you can be that person and do it in a compelling, entertaining way, then I think you're going to probably do well. That's really good advice. I think it, I'll plus like a thousand the last thing you said too, because I think it's even, I mean, it's important in YouTube in general, but for developer YouTube, like think of, the mo mindset we get in when I have a problem and I go to like Google or YouTube to look up a solution to that problem, like you want an answer <laughs> fast. Like that, exactly. Like <laughs> right, that. you don't want, you don't need a whole complete like backstory or everything. Like you want to get your answer, but like you said, there's still room for doing it in a compelling and entertaining way as well. And in a way that people will you know, remember that if especially people stumble upon your videos multiple times, they start to make a note of that. Yeah. And you can also, of course, as with everything, you can go too far with it. You can go and say, I think in my early videos, I was trying to pack as much as I could into 15 minutes. And I went really, 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 really fast. And people were like, hey, could you, whoa, slow down there a little bit, buddy. And it's like, you got to find that balance of I'm going to do something and I'm going to, I'm, I'm gonna, here's the topic I want to cover. And I'm going to shave it down to the point where I can reasonably cover it. The important parts in like 15 minutes and then leave people wanting more. Leave people like, oh, I thought that was cool. Maybe you should yeah. cover this next. And you could always like take steel approaches from other, you know, everybody watches YouTube videos. Oh, Just pay yeah. attention to the people you like 
tech tech or otherwise, right? Just the people who just make compelling content. Like there's, they don't have a copyright on that technique. You can do the same sort of thing, use the same sort of tricks, teach yourself to do the same same approaches. Yeah, there's a really great piece of advice from Ira Glass of NPR. I don't know if you know him. He's on like This American Life. Yeah. Um, and his whole thing was have taste, right? That's the number one thing that you need when you're creating content is a sense of taste. Like, I like this, I don't like that. And, and when you look at your own videos and you say, ugh, I didn't, I didn't do that well, I didn't do that well, that's actually a good sign. It means that you're going to be constantly improving, constantly pushing yourself to make a better video, make something that's more engaging, more compelling. Very cool. Well, Jake, this has been a lot of fun. Is there anything we haven't touched on? Anything earth shattering that we we need to cover here before we we wrap up? I don't think so. I mean, this I, this is just really great. I really enjoyed it, and it's a fun conversation. Thank you. Oh, cool. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Sentry. Sentry is the thing that I put into all of my apps first thing. I figure out how to deploy them. I get them up on the web and then I run Sentry on them. And the reason why is because I need to know what's going on in my app all the time. The other thing is, is that sometimes I miss stuff. I'll run things in development, works on my machine. We've all been there, right? And then it gets up into the cloud or up on a server and stuff happens, stuff breaks. I didn't configure it right. AWS credentials, something like that, right? And so I need to get the error reporting back. But the other thing is, and this is something that my users typically don't give me information on, is I need to know if it's performing well, right? I need to know if it's slowing down because I don't want them getting lost into the Twitterverse because my app isn't fast enough. So I put Sentry in, I get all of the information about what's going right and what's going wrong. And then I can go in and I can fix the issues right away. So if you have an app that's running slow, you have an app that's having errors, you have an app that you're just getting started with, go check it out at sentry.io slash four, that's F-O-R, sentry.io slash four slash react. And use the code react roundup, that's all one word, to get three months of their base team plan. So why don't we move on to the picks? And I, I think I can get started. I, I've got I'm first going to pick one that's not that uncommon. We've been starting The Mandalorian so oh. on, on Disney Plus. And I'm still, I, I'm trying to avoid spoilers because we decided to, we watched the first season, but our kids are 10 years old and we're like, hey, yeah, they're old enough to, to take this in. So we've started watching season one again. And I've forgotten, like, I've already seen these episodes, but I'm still compelled. Like I I thought like, oh, well, we'll put them on for the kids and I'll kind of try to get some stuff done or whatever. And I, I was sucked right back into the, to the thing. So if anybody hasn't seen it yet, highly recommend it. It's really good. So I'm looking forward to seeing season two also. It's amazing how every time I look at these, like the credits on these TV shows that I watch, John Favreau keeps popping up over and over and over again. And it's like, this guy is just doing some just amazing stuff. Yeah, he's, he's batting 1,000. Yeah, and it's not quite... <laughs> It is fan service in a way, but it's not like J.J. Abrams level fan service. It's like it's fan service, but with a with a mindset towards like, hey, we're involving this thing. We're, we're going into new areas. It's really cool. Yep. That, that's my pick for today, Jack. Do you have any? Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of Edward Tufte. He's a, a guy that's been talking about data visualization and how to present information and do storytelling around information for, wow, years. He does an amazing lecture series. I don't know what he's doing right now in, in pandemic world, but if you ever get a chance to go see his lecture series, it's great. He had three 
We're actually four books out for the longest time. And just this year, he released a new one called Seeing with Fresh Eyes. And it is, again, just an amazingly compelling read. And just in the first couple of chapters, I thought it was really cool where he's talking about how white space is just as important as the text, right? And we tend to do these things where we compress text into these massive paragraphs that are really easy to get lost in. And as a person myself, I'm dyslexic. It can be really hard to read large volumes of text. And his whole thing is, hey, let it breathe, add some white space. It will help you pare down the text. So you're just talking about the stuff that's really important and, and organizing it the right way. But also, it's just easier to, and more enjoyable to read. And it's little things like that where they he, he even harkens back to some jazz stuff about you know how it's the notes that you don't play are just as important as the notes that you do play. And I think it's really, really yep. cool. And reading his books, it's always cool to see that, that he brings in so many ideas and synthesizes it from so many different disciplines. And I'm a huge fan of that as well. It's interesting stuff. It reminds me too, that it's a, it's actually a public speaking tip too, that like lots of times when people give talks, they want to rush through it. And sometimes if you just pause, that's how you make your most important points or how you can really captivate the audience. But there's, there's an art to it, right? It's, it's, oh, yeah. it's one of those things that like, but once you start looking for that, in talks and also like what you're discussing here with data visualization, you notice when it's used effectively and how powerful it can be. Yeah, because you're giving people time to think, you know, you're giving them, oh, okay, now it's on me to kind of process this information a little bit before we go on to the next thing. And it's yeah. it's empathetic, it's it's important to help people understand your content. I think it's just great. Cool, any other well, picks? No, I think I'm good. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. The last question for you, if people want to follow you, check out your, your any, everything you do, give us like a link drop. Where, where should people go? What should they do? JackHarrington.com works pretty well. Awesome. I will go ahead and make sure that gets linked up. Awesome. Thank you so much. I well, really appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me on. As I say, huge fan of the show. So thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah, this has been fun. So thanks again, Jack. And until next week, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.